said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is, it is great to have you here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 19 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Let me encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 1 for Sunday. We looked at the first portion of that and did an overview of the book last Sunday. If you weren't here, grab the CD. They're always free. Get yourself caught up so you'll be ready for next Sunday as we continue through Hebrews. Hey, I want to share my heart with you guys about a couple of things. Wednesday night's kind of the family, and we're all family always, but you guys are the ones that are here most often. Be praying. We, uh, a couple of things. I mentioned that full-power FM radio station. We're moving forward on that right now. Just be praying that God's will would be done with that. Uh, would be it, uh, Towers in Scotts Valley. It would reach all the way down past Monterey. It would reach over into San Jose some. And it would be ours 24 hours a day, seven days a week to just proclaim the gospel with boldness. So be praying for that. Second of all, uh, you know, for years we've been looking at buildings. And uh, I think we finally realized God doesn't want us to leave, at least not yet. And so we're actually uh, praying about entering into a long-term lease here, only doing so so that it gives us some opportunities to do even more things here. I won't go into the details of what those are, but it'd give us uh, just more opportunities to do things as far as children's ministry, uh, some more things that be dedicated just to us as a ministry that are here. So just be praying about all those things. God's will be done. Praise God for His sovereignty. It gives you peace, doesn't it? Amen? All right. Well, let's continue in 1 Samuel. Now, last week I was down at the Senior Pastors Conference, heard great things about the message. Pastor Ken, God bless you, bro. Um, so it's been a couple weeks since we were in 1 Samuel, and I want to just, again, by the way of quick review, in the last few chapters we looked at, and starting back around 15, 16, 17, we've been watching the transition. We saw the transition first from Samuel to Saul, from the prophets to the kings, and now we've begun to see the transition from the fleshly king that the men cried out for to the king that God anointed. And though David was anointed king several chapters back, we know that Saul is still reigning as king. It's truly a picture of the world we live in today. We know that Jesus Christ indeed is king, but Satan, in a lot of ways, is still the one in charge of this world. And so, with that being said, we see this this conflict between Saul and David. And if you'll recall, what happened was we saw that that Saul, because of his disobedience, his rebellion, and his impatience, what happened with this man was that God removed the kingdom from him. He took the Holy Spirit from him. And at that point, he, had anointed, he then went and anointed one, the young man David. David, who in the eyes of his own family wasn't much. Jesse, his father, didn't even call him in to meet Samuel. You remember from that chapter, he says, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And David was indeed a man after God's own heart. And he would be the man that God would use because of the rebellious Saul. Now, we get to chapter 17, we get to chapter 17 and we have the situation with Saul and Agag, and then finally we come to 17, we get that Samuel is writing to us about David and Goliath. And if you remember that story, that's where we really see David start to come into his own. In the previous chapter, he'd been playing the harp for Saul, or playing the guitar, we don't know exactly, it was a stringed instrument, and whenever he would play it, the, the demonic or the, the spirit that came from you know, the Lord, it says, but not of the Lord, would flee from him. I believe it was not a, a godly spirit because, again, it fled at the time of worship. But what is happening is David has been anointed king. He's still keeping the sheep. He's running to help Saul. He's gone back to keep the sheep. And now Goliath comes and challenges them. And Saul was supposed to be their king, but now no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, 
The Holy Spirit was given for a specific task. The Holy Spirit had been removed from him. He knew that he was going to face judgment and was afraid that Goliath was it. So instead he said, if anybody will go down and fight, I'll give him my daughter and I'll give his family you know, tax-exempt status, and still no one would go. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the number of testing in Scripture, we saw Goliath come down and challenge them. And finally David shows up, being a messenger boy, delivering cheese to his brothers. He hears this, and in contrast to the fleshly King Saul, who sees you know, a 10-foot or 11-foot, 700-pound roughly guy standing there who makes him fearful, David sees it from a spiritual perspective and realizes this is mere man coming against Almighty God. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against the true and living God? And he goes down and he fights him. And we've talked about this where, you know, can you imagine the scene? You know, he hits him with the sling and down he goes. You know, the ground shakes, the, the dust kicks up. And when the dust clears, they look down and there's David standing on top of Goliath holding his head up. And at that moment, all the Philistines began to run away. And great boldness came into all of the people in Israel who had been shaking in their boots. And we've talked about this, that when one stands for God, often it encourages the faith of others. And so David led them in the charge, and this was all great. And Saul, no doubt, was at least initially blessed until he heard a song being sung. The song was, Saul is slayed as thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And all of a sudden, this one who had taken Saul's place and done what Saul should have done, but was truly the king of Israel that God had anointed, now all of a sudden he becomes someone. It says last chapter, chapter 18, that from that point forward, Saul kept his eye on David. And he wasn't keeping his eye on him because he liked looking at him. He was keeping his eye on him because he was jealous and envious and was afraid that indeed this could be the guy. This could be the one that would take his kingdom away from him. If you remember the title of the message from two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. Because what we saw was that while people say that, you know, that blood is thicker than water, truly the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. When you have Jesus in common, you have more in common than any, any family line that there can be outside of the Lord. And so we saw that Jonathan has his heart knit to David because they have the Holy Spirit in common. If you'll remember, Jonathan had done something much like David. He'd gone up and fought the Philistines, just him and his armor bearer, while his dad was sitting with the only other sword in all of Israel under a pomegranate tree, pouting. And David, or, uh, Jonathan went and fought, and then he saw the same heart in David, and their hearts were knit together, and we saw how Jonathan had purposed and knit his heart to him, and even removed his robes and gave them to David to say, you know what, I know that you're really the king. Even though I'm in line, you're the king. Now that brings us to tonight's chapter. And obviously the notes are up there because I see you feverishly writing them down. But I want you to know, this begins a period of time that would begin just a horrific time for David from the world's perspective. But I really want to talk to you guys tonight about the fact that though David's life was in constant jeopardy, David's going to go into, it's going to be called David's exile, 10 or more years, hiding in hills, running for his life, never able to settle down anywhere. Again, fearful until the day that Saul dies. And we can look at that and think, this just doesn't seem fair. He was anointed king. Why does Saul still get to reign? This just doesn't make any sense to me. And maybe you can relate it to your own life. You know what? I, I don't understand why, you know, people that aren't walking with God seem to be blessed. It all determines on what you qualify as being blessed. Because whatever it takes to draw me closer to the Lord, that's what I want. And David was in the ultimate, you know, I guess, I don't know, how, it's not Bible college, but, 
You know, he was in... He was in a ministry college getting prepared to be the king and time in the cave was preparation for what God had next. And sometimes we want it right now and God says, no, I'm still working on you. I'm still preparing you. David was a man after God's own heart, but there was still more that David, God wanted to do in David's heart. So this begins with this chapter and chapters going forward this preparation time in the life of David. And if he were not a man who looked at things from spiritual perspective, he would have struggled big time. He would have thought, what in the world did God... Did they forget about anointing me king? Did he forgot the promise he made to me? How in the world is this still happening? But you never see that in David. You know what you see in David? A submitted heart. Someone who continues to love the very king who's throwing spears at him. And it reveals that he indeed is a man after God's own heart. Know this, guys, that... We may struggle, we may wonder, we may question why God would allow certain things to happen. But we need to remember that God is indeed faithful and that God indeed is in control. And to know that it's not the outward things that are truly the blessings in life. It's an inward transformed life that really matters. Guys, it won't matter on your deathbed. It won't matter on judgment day. The things that, we would, that many of us would count blessings. What's really a blessing is to see people's lives transformed. What's really a blessing is to be a tool in the hand of our master used in a way that impacts eternity. That's what a blessing is. And it might be that we have to lose some of the physical things to really be used by God in the spiritual ones. So, you've taken your notes already, so I'll just tell you, I'll read to you behind me, right? I tell the message, you're not alone in the midst of your trials. And I know that for some of you tonight, this is right on time. God's word always is. We need to see our trials from a spiritual perspective. We're going to see some lessons that we learn from the life of David. Number one, we're going to see that there is an enemy who wants to destroy you. But you have a much greater God who loves you, watches over you, and protects you. We are not to live defeated lives as Christians. Amen? Amen? We're not to walk around looking like we've been sucking on a lemon. Amen? Amen? As Christians, we should have joy. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness. So there's five ways he ministers to us in the midst of difficulty that we'll see in the text. Number one, you have a prince and a best friend who intercedes on your behalf. Number two, your enemy's power is limited to what God will allow. That ought to be a great encouragement to you. Satan can't do anything to you that God doesn't allow. Amen? No test, no trip, no tempt, nothing unless God allows it. Thirdly, through his bride who ministers to you in the midst of your own imperfections. These are ways that God is going to minister to you through his bride, his bride being the church. Number four, the prophetic truth that brings you into comfort of the Holy Spirit. And number five, he ministers to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin in verse one of 1 Samuel 19. You're not alone in the midst of trials. Seeing our trials from a spiritual perspective, lessons we can learn from the life of David. And let's go back and begin in verse 28 just to bring us up to speed. It says, Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. This is after he had brought back double the amount of foreskins that he had been challenged to bring back by, by King Saul. And that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Why did he become his enemy? Because he was being used by God. We'll talk more about that. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was wherever they went, whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Now, what had David done 
to raise the ire of King Saul. You know what he had done? Serve God faithfully. He had gone out and he had slain the giant when nobody would fight him. He had led the people out into battle when nobody else would. He took, even when he was given a daughter of of Saul's for a wife for defeating Goliath, when he took that, that daughter away and gave him to somebody else to try to stir up David, he didn't respond. David didn't try to take the throne. David was submitted to the king. He was submitted first and foremost to the Lord. He was a godly man. You know what this tells us? When you are on fire for God, the world will be your enemy. Now understand something. That doesn't mean that we look at the world as an enemy and we have hatred toward them or animosity. No, we love them for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We are to love the world, but understand this. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't love you back. Because when we have Jesus in us, it convicts the world around us. Can you imagine King Saul? He was the king. He was the spirit-filled king. He was the one they sang songs about. He was the one who Samuel had first anointed. And now it's David. And the envy of this man who's walking in the flesh says, I got to get rid of that guy. I got to remove him. Not unlike what our country is trying to do now. Remove the Lord out of everything. They just made the post office. I got this today in the email. They just told the post office they have to take down all the signs that say, in God we trust. Now, what's amazing about that? Like, that's going to remove God. You know, here's what I think we ought to do. On on the back of every envelope you mail out from now, I already did this today with my bills. I flipped it over and wrote, in God we trust, Jesus loves you, John 3, 16. On every envelope that I mailed out, I figured, well, here, let's just do this instead. And so every envelope that goes out, when everybody sorts it and turns it over, it's going to be on every envelope instead of one spot on the wall. Let's just do that from now on. But here's the point. The point is the world doesn't love our God. And because they don't, when they see God in you, they're not going to be liking it. And here's the problem with David. He is under heavy-duty persecution and will be just for simply loving God. Now let me separate that from something else before we move on. Sometimes it's not persecution that we're under. It's consequences of sinful behavior. So let's not mix those two things up. It is not God's fault that you went out and got bent for three days and lost your job, right? You didn't show up for work because you were out getting drunk and, oh man, God just, God didn't do it. You did that. Amen? Amen. Now, it's another thing if you're sharing your faith at work and you're just loving people supernaturally and then you lose your job. Those are two different things, aren't they? And we need to make sure we separate the two because I meet too many people that because of their own sinful behavior are trying to blame God. It's not God's fault. It's yours. Amen? Amen? Nothing's ever God's fault. Amen? God doesn't do anything wrong. He has nothing to be at fault about, okay? So we see here that there's this ire in the eyes of of Saul. And you know what? Before, we know that he had already done things to try to kill David. He had already thrown a couple spears at him. We know that. I'm always blown away that he threw two spears at him. Because that means David stayed. You throw one spear at me, I throw it back or I run. I don't stay. I don't keep playing the harp, right? David stayed. He threw another one at him. He stayed there. Then he took his wife away from him after giving him his wife and gave it to another woman, trying to see if he could get David fired up. He tried to send David out into a battle that seemed unwinnable. He sent him out to go get a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Uh, They don't give those up easy, okay? (laughs) So he said, go out there. And David goes out and gets 200, right? I mean, he's done everything he can. Now he finally just says, you know what? I'm not even going to pretend anymore. Kill that guy. I'm just going to openly tell everybody I want him dead. 
And he tells his own son, as we know, Jonathan last week already said that he had a heart and a love for David. We saw that in the text last week. So he takes the next step now. No longer does a covert desire. He's openly proclaiming his desire to kill the man who's done nothing but humbly serve God, humbly serve the king, and walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's done. And because of it, Saul wants him dead. Guys, guess, you know that this is a true statement. Satan's resources are limited. You know that? Sometimes we make him the opposite of God. He's not the opposite of God. He's nowhere near God. He can't touch God. He's toast compared to God. Amen? Amen. He can't be everywhere all at once. He's not omnipresent. He can't read your thoughts. He's not God. He's not close. He doesn't have God's powers. Okay? Period. Now, with that being said, a third of the angels fell with him. How many is that? A lot. I don't know how many, but a lot. But because his resources are limited, he's going to spend them in specific ways. And most often, those he's going to go after with the greatest amount of fervency are those who are being used most by the kingdom of God. And I've said this to you before. You know, I don't believe that Satan even knows the name of every person. I don't think he knows six billion names. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's smarter than that. I just don't think he does. So that means the names, I, I guarantee he knows Billy Graham's name. Right? He knows the names of those being used most mildly by God. I've said this to you before. Do you want, I want to live a life so on fire for God that, he know, that Satan knows my name. Some of you might go, well, I want him to almost know my name. I kind of want to live a life just right below where he knows the names. If he knows the name, I'm going to be right below that. Don't know my name, all right? Leave me alone. But you know what? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And as we see here in the life of David, all he's done is serve God, and here comes persecution. And David is just going to keep on being a godly man. The more fruitful your life, the bigger target you become for the enemy. Satan is not happy that you are a Christian. Satan is not happy that you're sharing your faith. Satan is not happy that you're raising your kids in a godly home. Satan is certainly not happy that you're going to heaven, and he's not. He's seen it. He knows what he's been cast out of. And you know what? He wants, you to, wants to keep you from leading others to the truth. He wants to silence you. He wants you to not share with people and lead them out of darkness, death, and damnation into the kingdom of life and light and salvation. And so that's why David was a target. And guess what? So are you. And so am I. But you know what? We don't walk around in fear of the enemy. By the way, the Bible tells us not to even address him. You don't address Satan. You don't talk to him. Let God take care of him. Amen? We don't rebuke Satan. Let God do that. God will handle it. God will take care of him. Let's just focus on Jesus Christ and serve him with our whole heart and know that there can be nothing come our way unless God allows it. Let's not over-spiritualize things, but at the same time recognize that Satan does indeed exist. So the same ways he ministered and protected to David, he does for you and I today. And let me give you the five ways. Let's begin there in the second half of verse 1. And it says there that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Number one, you have a prince and a best friend who intercedes on your behalf. Now look at this. While Saul hated David, Jonathan loved him. You know what? It says in the last chapter that all the servants of Saul love David. So sometimes we say, well, I'm a Christian. Everybody hates me. No, that's not true at all. The truth is that Almighty God, first and foremost, loves you. But you know what? God puts other believers into your life that love you as well. And so we need to understand and grasp the fact that while there's an enemy that hates us, there are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, like-minded believers who love us. You know what, guys? I, I, I love you guys. So I would die for you guys. 
And I believe you would probably die for me too. Guys, what we have in common is eternal. Amen? It's far beyond any connection you can have with anybody else in life apart from the Holy Spirit. There's such a bond there. It's such a joy just to get together and to see each other and to fellowship. And so we see that David's not alone. And sometimes when we're going through difficulties and we're under attack, we feel like we're alone, but we need to remember that we're not. So Saul probably thought that since Jonathan was next in line, that he probably hated David too. So he tells Jonathan he wants David dead. And Jonathan had already knit his heart to David, these two spirit-filled men. Now Jonathan had a fork in the road here. He can go out and kill David and be the next one in line to be king, or... He can walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and recognize who David is and disobey the king and his father. That's the choice that Jonathan has. Let's see how this prince, in a sense of Israel, the next in line to be king, how does he respond, verse 2? So Jonathan told David. Now, first of all, do you think that Saul's happy about that? I want David dead. Jonathan goes out and tells him, Saul wants to kill you. Now, first of all, if David didn't know this already, I'm not, I'm not trying to understand why he doesn't. Thrown spears at me already. He sent me on suicide missions, right? But he goes out and he tells him, you know what? My dad wants you dead. He wants you dead. And he goes out and he tells him. And then it says there, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in, sec- in a secret place And hide. Now, again, instead of pursuing him, he's protecting him. His dad said, I want you to pursue him, and he goes out and he protects him. Jonathan is a faithful friend indeed. The Bible says a friend is a friend at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. You find out who your friends are when things are tough. It's easy to be your friend when being your friend costs nothing. It's harder to be a friend when being your friend means you're going to get in the line of fire when you're going through a difficult time. And you know what? We need to be the kinds of friends who are born for adversity. Those who would stand by each other in the midst of difficult times. You know what's awesome too is Jonathan had already said he was willing to lay down his life for David. The Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. David was the rightful king and he was being forced to flee the palace. David's called, he's anointed, but it wasn't time yet. And it's so hard for us to wait for God's timing. So he goes and he tells them, Wait until morning, they're going to be, and then sneak out of town. Get out of here, hide until morning, and then get out of here. Verse 3, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, that what I observe, I will tell you. Jonathan was not going to attack David, nor was he just going to be a neutral observer. He was fully on David's side. He didn't just, you know, stand in the middle to see who wins and then float to whichever side that was. I'll get between my dad and David and just let me just watch how this plays out. And whichever side wins, I'll just pretend like I was with them all along. You know what? I believe that God is sick and tired of lukewarm Christianity. He's tired. I mean, it just must break his heart. You know, he didn't come partially for us. He didn't die halfway for us. He gave us all for us. We need to give our all for him. Amen? And you know what, instead of, well, I'm going to kind of be in the world and tap dance with the world and be kind of a Christian and, you know what, doing the spiritual splits between the world and Christ. And God's desire is that we just be fully in love and devoted to Him completely. And we see this here in Jonathan's heart. He's not saying, well, I'm going to kind of feed you a little. He said, you know what, I'm going to go talk to my dad for you. 
I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to go intercede on your behalf as my brother in the Lord because I love you and because I know that God has his hand upon you. He was fully on David's side. Do you ever wish that someone would stand up for you like this? Someone did. His name is Jesus, and you know what he's doing right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. Amen? When Satan shows up bringing accusation, oh, look, Pastor Dave lost his temper. You see that? Oh, there's one of your guys. Oh, one of your pastors. Look at him. You know what Jesus said? Paid for that. I redeemed him. I've forgiven him. I paid the price for him. Does it ever blow you away that Jesus prays for you? Does that blow you away? It ought to. Amen? That's who's on our side, guys. We're not in this alone. When you go out there and you're struggling and it's difficult and you think, man, I'm in this all by myself, remember that he never leaves you nor forsakes you, ever. And Jonathan is a picture of that right here. Here's Jonathan willing to intercede on behalf of his brother. Satan accuses us. Jesus defends us, and he doesn't defend us based on what we've done, but based on what he's done for us. Look at verse 4. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. Now that was a risk right there. You get up and say, I want this guy dead, and then you go and say, you know, actually, he's a pretty good guy. I hate this guy. He's my arch enemy. I want him dead. Kill him dead. Children dead. Family dead. Kill them all. Pets dead, right? Kill him. And he goes, you know, actually, he's a pretty good guy. Dad, I kind of like him, Right? And remember, this is Saul, I kill people, Saul, right? Remember, Samuel was afraid to go and anoint David king because he knew that Saul could kill him. You remember that? And he gave him a reason. Go up and say you're making sacrifice. So Saul was a bad guy. And Saul would kill people first and ask questions later. And so we know that here, Jonathan could have been very afraid. But instead, we see that he's fully committed to the Lord and to his brother, David, and brother in Christ. Not in Christ yet, but would be. And it says there, And said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. Whoa. Saul, hey, Dad, don't sin. If you kill this guy, you're sinning against God. Whoa. Now that takes some boldness, doesn't it? But it shouldn't be surprising because that is the same guy that went with one sword and armor bearer and attacked a garrison of Philistines. You know, when the Holy Spirit is in you, you know, God has not given us the spirit of fear. Amen? And when the Holy Spirit leads, it's like, hey, this is exciting. And I'm going to go. And this is the heart of Jonathan. Jonathan was fearless because he was faithful. And Jonathan, again, is David's best friend. He's the prince and he's interceding on his behalf. Jonathan He intercedes with sincerity. He intercedes also with meekness. But he speaks the truth. And he tells him what he has done. Verse 5. Now watch him give the claims of the things that David has done. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistines. The Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? He says to him, he hasn't sinned against you. He laid down his life and it would be a sin against innocent blood to kill David. Now, when you look at each of those things, it should remind you of somebody. It reminds me of the Lord. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Amen. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords and the Prince of Peace. How can he be the King and the Prince? He's God. He can do that. Amen. 
He's our Lord, our Savior, our friend. He intercedes on our behalf. Satan's the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus reminds him of all, not that we've done, but what he's done. You know, Jonathan says, look at all that David's done. The Lord shows up and reminds the enemy of all he's done for us. How he said, you know what? David went out and laid down his life on behalf of Israel. And Jesus would say, I laid down my life on behalf of all of them. Amen? He also would tell them that, as he said, if you kill David, you will have shed innocent blood. Jesus would say, my innocent blood was shed that they might have eternal life. If you don't see Jesus in this, you're not paying attention. Amen? The Bible says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And praise God, we should not walk around condemned. He paid the price. His blood, his innocent blood was shed. And our sin has been washed away. And there is no accusation against us anymore. It's all seen through the blood of our Savior. Man, I love just the pictures that you see in the Old Testament. Verse 6. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Now this is amazing. He goes to him, he speaks the truth, he hears it, and he actually responds. Now are you, sometimes it's kind of sad we get jaded. We share our faith and then we're blown away when people respond. Or we pray and someone gets healed and we're surprised. Anybody ever done that besides me? You pray for somebody to get healed. Like, I'm totally healed. Really? Right? That wasn't because of my faith you were healed. It's quite obvious, right? But here's the point. The point I'm making here is he goes up with great boldness. He speaks the truth. He does it in love. And you know what? Saul hears him. And Saul says, you know what, son? You're right. He heeded the voice of Jonathan and said, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. He actually swears in the name of the Lord that he will not be put to death. Now, one thing we were going to learn from this is that when you get the oath of a man who doesn't know God, it doesn't mean a whole lot because he's going to go back on this pretty quick. You know, the promise we have from God who separated us from our sin is everlasting because so is he and so is his character. But sadly, we're going to see this is indeed a hollow promise. Verse 7, then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in time past. Now, I want you to see something here. Jonathan, the prince, and his best friend goes and intercedes with the king. And after interceding with the king, there is restored fellowship between David and the king. When Jesus intercedes on behalf of sinful man, and we through his shed blood have been born again, then... There's been restoration in the fellowship between us and our King, Almighty God. Amen? Amen. Can you see this picture here again of our Savior? And this is what happens to us, for us. When we're going through difficulty, we need to remember that Jesus, you know, he says later to the apostles, you know, I now call you friends. And you know what? He is our friend. And he should be our best friend. Amen? Amen? And he is the prince of peace. And he is interceding on our behalf. And when we go through trials, we need to remember we're not alone. There's one interceding with the Father on our behalf. And also the one who is rejecting the accusations of the enemy. So you're not alone in the midst of your trials. Five ways he ministers to you in the midst of difficulty. Number one, you have a prince and a best friend who intercedes on your behalf. Number two. Enemy's power, the enemy's power is limited to what God will allow. You hear me say this often. You're indestructible until God is through with you. Amen? You can't die one second until God says. 
period. Now, that doesn't mean you want to go jump off a 100-story building because maybe God will be through with you, right? <laughs> the point is that the enemy can't shorten your life. Nobody dies too soon. I did a funeral, I told you, for a 30-year-old guy who was a worship leader in my youth group in San Jose. Just a godly young man. I love this young man. And went and did his funeral. And all these people were saying he died too young. And I got up and said, he did not die too young. He died right on time. Because you know what? We're, well, here's the mistake we're making. We're equating more time on earth as being a good thing. Right? I'm like, dude, he's with Almighty God. I'm, if anything, I'm hanging around too long, right? But no, God's, God's got us here for the amount of time he has us here for a reason. Amen? And we need to understand that God's timing is perfect. And so the enemy can't do anything to you unless the Lord allows it. Look at verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. You know what? Here's David again. What does David do? He's been mocked by the king. He's had spears thrown at him, and yet he still goes out and fights on behalf of the king, right? right. On behalf of the children of Israel. And what does he do? He wins a mighty victory. Now, do we see Saul fighting? We don't know for sure that he wasn't, but I have an idea he's not. And if he is, he's not being as accomplished at it as David. So how do you think he's going to respond? Knowing good old King Saul. How's he going to respond? Look at, look at the next verse. It says, Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in his house, with a spear in his hand. So David goes out and is victorious and Saul less or not at all. And now he goes back and the distressing spirit's back upon him. He's depressed. He's sitting there and he's got a spear in his hand. And here's the amazing part. And it says, and David was playing music with his hand. So David, you got to love this guy. He goes out and wipes out the enemy. Then he comes back and plays worship music. Don't you love this guy? He's worshiping before the Lord, and as he worships, we know in times past, the distressing spirit would leave. Well, in this case, it doesn't happen. He keeps playing the music, and watch, this distressing spirit does not leave. Now, I want to say this before I look at verse 10. The enemy is a liar, and he will tell you things like, Saul had told, told David, you know, if you go out and kill Goliath, and, and, and you know, then I'm going to give you what? Well, no, 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 never mind. I was going to, but I'm not going. I'll give you a different daughter, right? We also see that the Philistines had committed to saying that if you kill us, we will be your servants. And who did he just have to fight? The Philistines again. There's liars everywhere, right? And here's the point. David is being faithful in the midst of a faithless people. Guys, we are not about moral relativism. We don't base our behavior on the behavior of others. If David did, he would be a liar and renege on everything he said because everyone around him outside of Jonathan did just that. And we'd start to say, well, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I sleep with my girlfriend, but hey, man, it's 2007, man. I mean, get over it already. This is the times we live in now. Uh, fornication and it's sin. Amen? But, well, but I live in the... But hey, I'm entertained by those things. I'm not participating. Hey... You know what? The plumb line is not the world. The plumb line is Jesus. He is the one we measure everything against. And David is not falling into the trap of being a liar and going back on his word. You know what? He just keeps being faithful. Man, what a, I'm glad my parents named me David. I really am. 
Because it's an exhortation to me every time I read about this guy. Lord, help me to live up to the name you gave me. Help me to live up to this name. Verse 10. Then Saul fell on his knees and repented. No, that's not what I... Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. Again, this is the third time. I'm amazed at the heart of David. Here is David, filled with the Holy Spirit, fighting with the sword, playing with the harp. This is the guy everyone in the world should want to have near them. And all that Saul wants to do is kill this guy. All I, want, I just want this guy dead. I want him out of here. You know why? Because he's godly and I'm not. Because he serves God and I don't. He's filled with the Spirit and I used to be. He's the one they're singing songs about. It used to be me. I don't get it. I don't want this guy around anymore. But you know what's amazing? He, this mighty warrior has now thrown a spear at a guy sitting and playing a harp three times and missed him every time. So he's either a lousy aim, I don't think that's it, or God's got his hand on David. And God is protecting David because we're indestructible till God's through with us. And God had a lot more in store for David's life. So there's no way in the world David was going to die. God said, I'm not done with this young man. I got a lot more I'm going to do through him. What a picture of the flesh and the spirit. You got Saul holding a spear and David playing worship music. Who do you want to have as king? You know, what are you holding on to? You holding on to your career? You holding on to your bank account? Or you holding on to the Lord? Are you in intimate fellowship with him or are you seeking after the things of this world? And it says there, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. He escaped because God was not done with him. Guys, you're not alone in the midst of your trials. There's five ways as we've talked about the first two already in the midst of difficulty, how the Lord stands with you. Let's look at the third one. The third way he's, he ministers to you is through his bride. Let's take a look at verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. So, remember, who, who's David married to? Michael. Michael is Saul's daughter. Very good. You get a, you get a star by your name. Very good. So, Michael is Saul's daughter, and Michael is married to David, and He throws the spear and he misses. So he sends some guys out to ambush David the next morning. Go and kill him. I'm not giving up on this. I'm not letting up. So he sends out these messengers. Again, he's called a full-fledged, you know, calling the assassins in to go out and wipe out David. What he had done to deserve this, he was just a faithful man. When the enemy attacks full force, when does he do that? When God's using you the most. So God's using this young man in a mighty way. Here, here's another point, guys. While Satan isn't all-knowing, he does know what the Word of God says. And the Word of God has already would later say that the Messiah would be the son of... And the son of David would be the name for the Messiah, right? Son of David. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that there's so much attack on David's life? Because if I can kill David, maybe there'll be no son of David. And again, I don't know if Satan knew that or not, but the point is he's attacking him full force. And he had an ambush ready to slay him. But look what happens. And Michael, David's wife, told him. You know what? This guy can't raise kids very well. King Saul's got two kids and they both told David, right? Well, two kids are recorded. He had more. But he, he tells Jonathan, Jonathan runs and tells David, my dad wants to kill you. 
And now he gets away, and he's there again, and he's brought restoration. And now he's with his wife, and Michael, the, son, the daughter of Saul, who he no doubt thought was on his side, goes and tells him, dude, you got to go. My dad wants to kill you. She went and told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So both his son and his daughter warned David. Now, some people would go to the nth degree. I've heard this. You've probably heard of the, there's different studies where they say you should obey your parents no matter what they tell you. If you're 55 and your dad's 75 and he tells you, you should obey, no matter what. I disagree with that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Amen? We should obey our parents until they tell us to do something contrary to the word of God. Parents call you, I don't want you going to church anymore. Well, I appreciate that and I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going anyway. Right? Amen? And the point is that Saul is commanding things to them and they're just not doing it. Why? They're going to obey God. The Bible says, who should we obey? God or man? Acts chapter 5. Amen? Obey God rather than man. And in this case, Michael and Jonathan are doing right. Now, Michael's doing something. The Bible would later say, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And so here she is, standing with her husband against her own father. Now look what it says in verse 12. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Now what's interesting is that David escapes. This reminds me of Rahab when she let the the men down, and they escaped as well. But Psalm 59 was written surrounding this event right here. Read it later. But in Psalm 59, David takes his case before God. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Later he describes his attackers. They lie in wait for my life. They growl like a dog. They belch out of their mouth. Swords are in their lips. Then later, David declares his innocence. Not for my transgression nor my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves. Though no fault, there's no fault in me. Through no fault in me. David had done nothing wrong. Then later he says in Psalm 59, he expresses his trust to God. He says, you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. My merciful God shall come to meet me. And then finally, David ends with triumphant confidence in the Lord. He says, but I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and my refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For my God is my defense, my God of mercy. He's surrounded. He seemingly has no one on his side outside of his wife and Jonathan. And he's not murmuring against God, but he's praising him. Guys, this is a lesson for us in the midst of trials. Don't murmur, praise. Amen? Amen. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had everything taken away. And those words come from that text. Verse 13. Now, Michael, just to prove to you that the bride, just like the bride of Christ, as we'll talk about in a moment, we are perfect in the eyes of God because he sees us as a perfect bride because he paid the price for us. But that does not mean that the church today is perfect. Amen? And Michael is a picture of that. Look at verse 13. And Michael took an image and laid it on her bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with her clothes. Now what's interesting with clothes, this might be the first time in human history anybody pulled off this deal, right? People have been doing this for centuries, right? You know, the kid wants to sneak out at night and they, you know, put the blanket and the thing and a hat and right and go to sneak out. out. Here's what she does. But the sad part is that first word there, she took an image. You know what that image is? An idol. She took an idol. What are you doing with the household idol? What are you doing? This shows that his bride 
though on his side was imperfect. And so too for us. The bride of Christ, the church, God wants to minister to you through the church, but if you expect the church to be perfect, you're going to be disappointed. And if you keep leaving churches every time they disappoint you, you'll never be at a church very long. And if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up when you get there. Because any church that has people in it is not perfect, amen? And so we see her in Michael. She is aiding her husband, but she's not doing it in the best way. Now look what it says, verse 14. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said he is sick. So she tells a lie to give David more time to get away. Is that right or wrong? I'll leave that up to you. Verse 15. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. Now this is getting kicked up a notch because now Saul wants to make sure he kills him himself. You know what? He's laying in bed. Just drag the whole bed over here and let me kill him. There's a good reason not to oversleep, right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. That's what the Bible says about a lazy man, right? A lazy man always lying in the street. You know, we need to rise up early and spend time with the Lord. Too much time in bed could end up with problems. So it shows the depth of his hatred. He wanted to deliver the fatal blow himself, even while David was laying sick in bed, at least in his mind. But may we live such godly lives that the enemy asks for us by name. You know, he asked for David by name. And I pray we live such lives that the enemy would do the same with us. I know that doesn't make sense to some of you. What are you talking outside of your mind? Verse 16. And when the messengers had come in, there was an image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy, my enemy, the anointed king of Israel, the Holy Spirit upon him, my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Is that true? No, she lied. Now, what we see in her is she was faithful in deed, but not in word. Sometimes people are faithful in word and not in deed. The Bible tells us to be faithful in word and in deed. Amen? We need to be people of our word and have our actions match our word. Be faithful in both ways. So the church on earth is far from perfect, just like Michael is far from perfect. But we should not walk away from fellowship because of it. In times of trial and difficulty and temptation, we should not run from fellowship, but press into it. Amen? We should be gathering together more and more and all the more as the day approaches, right? That's what the Word of God says. All the more as the day approaches. I'm preaching to the choir here on Wednesday when it's 95 degrees out, right? So you guys are the ones who are committed. But here's the point. We need to be those who press in more and more, not less and less in the midst of difficulty. Because the enemy wants to isolate you when things are tough. That's a number. If he can just get you away from Christians, just get you out of fellowship. You know, you know, you deserve to go tie one on after a tough day like today, right? How dare your wife treat you like that? You know what? You should go. That, that girl works. She's awful. Call her, right? And that's what the enemy does. He wants to isolate you. You become like the people you hang out with. Amen. So be hanging out with God's people. Five ways to minister to us in the midst of difficulty. Number four, the prophetic truth that brings you into the comfort of the Spirit. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. Now here's the great part. David has been going through it, and who does he run to go see? Samuel, the prophet, the one who had anointed him as king, God's man. I want to go see God's man. Things are tough. I don't run from the Lord. I run to him. I go find a godly man who I can seek godly counsel from. A godly man who can minister to me. 
He wanted direction from the Lord, and Samuel was the one who spoke for the Lord. Now, this might be a little bit of a reach in your mind, but this is just your pastor's opinion. You know what I think of when I see this? I think of the place, one of the places we should be running when we're going through difficult times. Remember in those days, the prophet spoke the word of God. Now, we have the word of God in our hands. So when you and I are going through a tough time, along with seeking godly fellowship, along with spending time in prayer before Almighty God, we need to open up the Word of God and allow Him to speak to us that He might encourage us, exhort us, rebuke us, correct us, whatever else needs to be done. Amen? And so that's what I see here in this picture is that He goes to the one who can give Him the prophetic truth, the truth of God's Word, because in those days they didn't have Bibles lying around. They had the law and scrolls, but they didn't have the the Word of God the way that you and I have it today. And then it says, and I like this, And he told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now Naoth was a place that Samuel had evidently started a school for prophets. The first Bible college, if you will. And so what does he do? Things are tough. He goes to meet Samuel. Samuel says, man, let's go down to the Bible college. Man, they're, they're down there worshiping. Let's go down and join the, the Bible college students in worship. This will be a great time of being refreshed and encouraged. This is like a retreat for David, right? He goes away and has a retreat to be refreshed and recharged because things are going tough. Guys, we need times to go away and have retreats with the Lord. Amen? Well, we're not distracted by the phone or by the TV or anything else. We just go spend time in the presence of Almighty God. And that's exactly what David's doing. And I love this picture of Samuel. Samuel didn't just give him a word and send him packing. You know what he did? He walked with him, it says. And he hung out with him. And the next time someone comes to you with a trial, don't just throw a verse at him and walk away. The Word of God is a wonderful thing. Put your arm around him and spend some time with him. Amen? You know, we only have eight pastors here, and on Sundays there's 300 or whatever people. You know what? We can't do it all. We all need to be doing it for each other. We're all called, amen? Every one of us. Let's use those gifts to minister one to another. So five ways the ministry. He ministers to us in the midst of difficulty. The last one. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Verse 19. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Naoth in Ramah. Now Naoth was actually inside of Ramah. It was inside the area. It was just a specific place where they had the school of prophets. And then David sent messengers, then Saul sent messengers, excuse me, to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as their leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So they show up. At the, at the school of prophets, and they're in there prophesying. And this can mean many things. I have my personal opinion, just my opinion. I believe they were singing praise songs. Okay? Prophesied can mean speaking the word of God. It can mean, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit's not the author of confusion. But it says that Samuel's leading them, so it could be very well that he was leading them in worship. They're all worshiping. These guys come in to, slay David, to get, grab a hold of David and drag him out, and the worship just overwhelms them. The Holy Spirit is there and they just drop their sword and just uh, start singing praise songs. Don't you love this picture? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Spirit of the living God is mightier than any sword or any army or anything else. And they come to capture David, but David's indestructible until God's through with him. And we see here that they came to seize David and instead they got seized by the Holy Spirit. Amen? 
They got grabbed a hold of by the Lord. Verse 21. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers. And they prophesied likewise. This just keeps growing. Then Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they prophesied also. This is becoming just a huge worship conference. The people mocking God are now praising God. Can I tell you that I love to see anyone get saved, but when you see someone who once mocked God with their whole heart, then praising God, just brings you to your knees. I had a guy I worked with, I'm over time, well, well, where are you going? Here's the point. But I had a guy I worked with, he used to come by my cubicle and mock God all the time when I was in sales. And we would have a, a Bible study, and he would peek his head into the Bible study and say, ah, oh, that Jesus great magician, ah, and he'd slam the door. He just was just like this. This was this guy. We'd, have, we'd be praying over a meal, and he'd come over and just start mocking God. And I would just share the Lord with him, and I have to confess, in my flesh, I wanted to drop him like a bag of hammers a few times, right? <laughs> he was an older guy, and I was in my 20s and lifting weights, and wanted to, I wonder how far I could throw him, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> But the Lord just kept saying, just minister to him, just minister to him. And I'll never forget, one day he came by my cubicle, and there had been a tragedy in his life, and he asked me if I could pray with him. And a month later, I baptized him in my swimming pool. He joined our Bible study, and then he started coming to the youth group I pastored in Lancaster. He would drive out to Lancaster and sit in the front row. He was in his 60s, and he was coming to my youth group every week because he was so hungry for the Word of God. And even now, I think about him, and I weep. Because I remember the guy that he was, and I saw the guy that he became. You know what, though? That's true of everybody in this room. Every one of us was in rebellion, lost, and then God got a hold of us, and look what he did. We mocked him, and now we praise him. And that's what's happening right here. From mocking to praising. And you got to love it. What a great thing. Verse 22. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that was at Sukkah, so he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are in, the, in Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth. He's prophesying before he gets there. He's on his way to go get David. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and he starts singing praise songs or prophesying the wonderful works of God all the way on his way to go get David. Amazing. You know, what's amazing about this, this is the man who wants to kill David. And this is the man who was once filled with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had left because of his rebellion, and the Holy Spirit now has come back upon him. Now, I want to make this very clear. This is the Old Testament. You and I, the Holy Spirit never leaves us. Aren't you glad? It's not that Holy, come, Holy, come. Now, we can be full of the Holy Spirit, and then we leak. Amen? And we need to be praying daily. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some of you have told me on Sunday, we've given opportunities for people to pray to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you know what the evidence of someone who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit is? It's not tongues, though it could happen. You know what it is? It's a changed life. Someone who's truly been baptized in the Holy Spirit, everything changes. Priorities change. Passions change. Desires change. So we're going to find out if this is sincere with Saul or not by how he responds in coming chapters. Because if this is legitimate, his life will change. If it's not, it will be temporary. And so too, many people cry out to God. And even says, and some will say, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he says, depart from me, for I don't even know you. So guys, the test is in the changed life, the transformed life that lasts for a lifetime. 
not just a momentary emotional thing. And then it says, he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they said, is Saul also among the prophets? You know, this goes to show you that no matter how great Saul thought he was, our God could get a hold of him just like that. Amen? Saul goes up there thinking he's the king. I'm going down to get David. And the Lord, there it is, right? He's laying down naked on the ground, worshiping. Now, the word naked doesn't necessarily mean no clothes. It means he stripped off his, his king, the garments of a king. And he laid on the ground. He humbled himself. And you know what? If that was the last word we heard about Saul, it would be good. Amen? That'd be a great place to leave this man. But sadly, he gets up. And you know what? His life doesn't really end up changing. And it's, it's actually pretty tragic. So, in closing, you're not alone in the midst of your trials. Seeing our trials from a spiritual perspective. Lessons we can learn from the life of David. Number one, there is an enemy who wants to destroy you. But you shouldn't be afraid. Amen? Amen. Five ways he ministers to us in the midst of difficulty seen in this chapter. You have a prince and a best friend who intercedes on your behalf. That's what the Lord's doing even as we speak. Second, the enemy's power is limited to what God will allow. You are indestructible till God is through with you. The sovereignty of God ought to bring you peace. The fact that he is in control. The fact that he will always be God and they can't vote him out of office. Amen? Amen. No matter what happens in our land, God is still in control. Third, through his bride, he ministers to us. Through the body of Christ. So even though the body of Christ is not always perfect, God uses the body to minister to us. We need to be in fellowship. Okay? And all the more as the day approaches. The prophetic truth that brings you into the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He ministers to us through the Word of God that brings us into the presence of God. Don't you open up the Word of God and it draws you into His presence? Doesn't it increase your faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's how He ministers to us in times of difficulty. And lastly, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, every morning my prayer before my feet hit the floor is, Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Guide my every step. Guard my eyes. Guard my thoughts. Help me to be a tool in your hands, Lord. I can't do it without you. I'm desperate. How dare we get out of bed without doing that? Amen? How dare we put one foot in front of the other without asking God to guide our every step? Because without Him, we can do what? Nothing. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So if you're here tonight and you've been going through a tough time, be encouraged. You're not alone. Our God is faithful. And you know what? Through the temptations and trials, God is preparing you for something greater. Don't be bummed out about it. Be thanking God for it. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. You are a great and an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that you never leave us alone, that you love us so much. And Lord, you love us knowing every wicked, vile thing we've ever done or thought. He that knows me best loves me most, and that blows me away. Father, I lift up those who are here tonight going through a tough or difficult time, going through trials, temptations. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that they would know even now that they're not alone. Lord, that you love them. Pour out your spirit upon them, refresh them, strengthen them, encourage them. Lord, help us as a body to put our arms around them. And we just thank you and praise you, Lord, for your your love and your grace. We continue to lift up Santa Cruz County to you. Father, we pray and ask in Jesus' name you bring revival to this county. And Lord, start in our hearts first. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.